Two years ago, on the 17th of March, the LA Times published a routine story. It began, A shallow magnitude 4.7 earthquake was reported Monday morning, five miles from Westwood, California, according to the US Geological Survey. The tremor occurred at 6.25am Pacific time, a depth of five miles. So this is a common occurrence. California lies on the San Andreas Fault, so there are thousands of small earthquakes every year. And magnitude 4.7. You'd feel it, but it's that's minor. Unsurprisingly then, the article, like the earthquake, is barely noticed. It might not seem it, but the last sentence, which was just an acknowledgement, is a story all of its own. This information comes from the US Geological Survey Earthquake Notification Service and this post was created by an algorithm written by the author. It turns out the LA Times have been using robots to write the news we read for years. The story was written by a robot, or the algorithm for the earthquake detection was written by a robot. The article was written by a robot. Whoa. I'm Bruce Miller. I'm Phil Sansom. This is Apex, in which we bring you stories surrounding the question, what makes us human? We're on 97.2 Cam FM. Today we're delving into the intriguing world of writing robots and the sometimes surreal stories of internet chatbots. In previous episodes we've delved into war and stories about being inhuman. We've also explored language and decided it might be uniquely human. And along the way we've suggested that creativity also sets us apart. Certainly no animal matches us in these respects. But what if we could create robots that pass as human, that can write, hold conversations and do human jobs? What if they could even be creative? So the LA Times published this first piece of robo-journalism back in 2014. This is the work of a program called QuakeBot. It took loads of data about earthquakes, the intensity, the locus, thousands of numbers, and presented them in prose. It's not the only robo-journalist at the LA Times. The program is also used for homicide reports. And this makes a lot of sense. When stories are data-driven, robots could save journalists a lot of time sifting through data to pick out the bits worth reporting. And so it's actually become quite prevalent. Several news organisations are using robots. The Associated Press have been using robots on financial stories. And the Washington Post used a robot for the Rio Olympics. StatsMonkey is the name of a sports robo-journalist. It was developed at Northwestern University by Professor Larry Birnbaum and his team. Um, I'm Larry Birnbaum. I'm a professor of computer science and of journalism at Northwestern University. And I'm also the head of the CS division here. And um, I'm also the co-founder and chief scientific advisor of a company called Narrative Science. But a quick note, the opinions in this interview are Larry's own. Yeah, so StatsMonkey was the name of a project that we did at Northwestern about six years ago. We got to thinking about how could we generate narratives from data. We'd been doing some work to generate um, narratives. I hesitate to call them that. We were stringing together pieces of text that we would find online. We would take paragraphs and sort of stitch them together to build things that were moderately coherent based on a bunch of um, sort of semantic relations among these pieces of text. And you can build surprisingly um, realistic kinds of uh, documents that way. 
it bothered me a little bit because the systems, these systems don't necessarily understand what they're talking about and they're not using their own words. And I thought that those things were related and began to think about kind of how could I get a machine to know what it was talking about. And I mean, I know this is obvious, but um, eventually, you know, I realized that if it had a lot of data about the situation, then it would kind of know what it was talking about in, in the sense that a computer can know what it's talking about. And so we sort of developed the idea of generating narratives from data. And we originally started with baseball and they write very nice little baseball game recaps. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not, you know, they're not the New Yorker, but they are, um, they're very good workmanlike stories. So the idea was that by providing a program with more information or data, it would produce a more appropriate output, which appears to demonstrate its understanding. The bigger the database, the better the program would get at spotting patterns and responding to them. It's like learning and the more stimulus you give it, the more it improves, you know, just like teaching a kid. I have to say, I don't really know what a baseball story sounds like. <laughs> especially especially a New Yorker baseball story. What does he mean by, you know, it's like a good New yeah, Yorker I'm, story? Yeah, I'm skeptical. Mm -hmm. I want to give you an idea of the quality of these kind of articles. Actually, there was a study published in Journalism Practice back in 2014 that set out to assess exactly this. Enter the Robo-Journalist is a paper by Krista Clowell. He gave readers two sports articles to assess, one by a robo-journalist and one by a human. So Phil, can you give them a read? Here's the first one. Matt Castle, Russell Wilson and Mark Sanchez have struggled and their starting jobs are in jeopardy. Their passes might sail high, but three NFL quarterbacks have landed far short of expectations. Kansas City's Matt Castle, Seattle's Russell Wilson, and the New York Jets' Mark Sanchez aren't the only starting quarterbacks who are struggling. There are several, but they're the ones inching ever closer to the bench. Through four games, the three have combined for 14 touchdowns and 15 interceptions, and each plays for a team in danger of falling behind early in their respective division races. In the brightest spotlight is Sanchez, and not only because he plays in the country's biggest market. He has Tim Tebow looking over his shoulder, and it's only a matter of time until the Jets give Tebow a chance. A telegraphed pass, if ever there was one. I have not the foggiest what a telegraphed pass is. I, I have not the foggiest what a lot of those things are. <laughs> Given that I'm American, I probably should know a little bit more about this. Mm. And Tim Tebow is a name that I recognise, but is 14 touchdowns good? Not, not a clue. Not a clue. It seems well written to me. And there's a lot of turns of phrase that are quite... Indeed, like human tropes sort of things. Yeah, exactly, like uh -huh. in the brightest spotlight. Okay, uh, second one. Even with an unexceptional outing for Philip Rivers, the Chargers handled the Chiefs 37-20 at Arrowhead Stadium. Rivers found the end zone for two touchdowns against the Chiefs on 18 of 23 passing for 209 yards and one pick. Matt Castle went 24 of 42 with 251 yards passing, two touchdowns and three picks for the Chiefs. The San Diego defensive unit led the way to victory, allowing 119 yards rushing and 234 passing while bringing back one interception for a touchdown. They brought down Castle for two sacks. Lastly, Nick Novak was perfect, hitting all three of the field goals he attempted. Chiefs running back Jamal Charles provided some spark with 92 yards rushing, 23 receiving, and two touchdowns. Wide receiver Dwayne Bow also gave a strong effort with 108 receiving yards and one touchdown. The Chargers travel to New Orleans next week 
to meet with the Saints while the Chiefs are at home to take on the Ravens. Okay, so which one do you think is by the Robo Journalist? Oh, this is obvious, surely. Okay, so the first one I thought maybe a little bit repetitive. Uh-huh. There are a few turns of phrase, but the second one, it was all numbers, and then and then Malcolm got eighteen of twenty-three, <laughs> and it it seems obvious to me that the second one is a robot that's been handed a bunch of stats and handed a bunch of ways to package them. It does seem pretty obvious, but. In actual fact, a study found that people couldn't consistently identify the type of author, and the readers were asked to score the articles on 12 descriptors. These included things like objective, accurate, boring, coherent, and descriptive. Of the 12 descriptors of quality and credibility, the only significant difference between the two articles was in the descriptor pleasant to read. That's really interesting. I thought that like human creativity is, is uh, very much a boundary that would be weird to cross if a robot could replicate it. Mm-hmm. And the the descriptor pleasant to read is absolutely crucial for writing and journalism and it's it's what i would pick if i were asked to pick one standout factor that that describes that human creativity so so the key there basically is that of the 12 descriptors they're not of all equal weight exactly i think i think well, unless but, unless the actual human journalist isn't accurate at all and just reports the <laughs> like entirely the wrong score that's true but given the others are the same mm-hmm. i think pleasant to read is the key yeah perhaps 11 of 12 have been mastered but the 12th one is going to be a battle for the robot 12th one is a battle okay so it writes a fairly decent data-driven story is that impressive well it's not just regurgitating the data it's a big part of the task of a story generation system to figure out what to talk about You can't take a wall of data and turn it into a wall of text. That's not a a story. That's just one darn thing after another. You know, it's not a it's not it's it's not illuminating at all. And the biggest part of generating a narrative actually is figuring out of all the things that are in the data. What is it that ought to be conveyed? So, I mean, I think the question of what's the theory of makes what you know, what is the theory of what makes something interesting is is actually an an interesting question. I mean, um, um, one answer is that something is interesting if it's unexpected. So a very typical thing you'll do in, in a system like this is you'll make sure that any outlying data that seems particularly um, particularly outlying will be brought to the attention of the reader. You've pointed out that the s- statistics were you know, really in your face in that second article. Mm-hmm. But the point is that they haven't just taken every single measurement, every single goal or whatever. They've they're at least attempting to pick out what someone wants to read about. Choosing to report novel and unexpected information helps to create an interesting article, but I'm sure that I could still write an awful article about what is in principle a fascinating story. So there's got to be another secret. And and then sometimes actually it's based on the convention of the kind of narrative that you're trying to generate. So I mean, one of the things that we have to do and actually it's exciting to do this is to sort of spell out narrative genres and think about the kinds of points that they need to make and the kinds of rhetorical structure that they need to be able to make those points. Um, And you need to think about um, how do I structure the narrative in order to give the reader what he or she needs. One way to think about a story is that it's kind of a frozen conversation. I mean, uh, a story starts by asking and answering a question, and then that answer raises other questions. And a good story should go on to, in the reader's mind, and a good story goes on to answer those questions in turn. So we have to actually try and understand how that 
sequence is going to evolve if we're going to write a good narrative. And so in some ways, what we really have to do is try and figure out what do what does a good prose writer do when he or she writes a story like this. By understanding the genres, the stories can be given narrative arcs. This means the style and tone will be different in a game that was an intense back and forth, a tough slog or a trouncing. What's more, StatsMonkey can pick out vital plays and players, and the programme could even be extended to pick out quotes, for example, from post-game interviews. Like, the, the more you're telling me, the more, like, vaguely impressed I am. <laughs> there's, there's a glimmer of hope for the robot. <laughs> so the developers have distilled what it means to tell a compelling story and packaged this up into an algorithm. What's really significant here is that you'd probably say that deciding if something is interesting is subjective, wouldn't you? I, absolutely, I would say that. But what Larry Birnbaum's just told us is that StatsMonkey has an algorithm for this. We're talking about a robot that appears to make a subjective decision. So I don't know about you, but that sounds fairly human. I'm going to need some more convincing. Okay. Sifting through data, picking out juicy bits and sticking it into a narrative arc, all of that is dictated by a set of algorithms or rules. Is this creativity? If anything, I thought rules stifled creativity. If they are creative, will we ever have a robot JK Rowling? We're about to open a big old can of worms. You know, you're raising a really, that's a really deep question. You know, people have asked me very often, but aren't these stories repetitive? And the answer is, well, no, because the world is not that repetitive. And they're basing their, in some sense, the generativity of these stories arises from the generativity of the world. I hope, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I'll forgive you if that last sentence lost you. Generativity. What is generativity? Generativity is the capacity to build new things out of combinations of, or by modifying, or using in new ways, previous things. So imagine you've got a tub full of Lego, little oh, Legos, yes. right? And you're, you're building something, and you built it, and then your brother comes along and smashes it. What a nincompoop. But then you can use the same previous things to build something entirely new. Larry's saying that stories change each time because the world, and therefore the data that makes up the stories, changes each time. They're, they're, not in, they're not fantasizing. They're not making up. They're looking for certain kinds of things to say. These machines, um, the systems that, that I build and my colleagues build, are, they're trying to be faithful. Um, uh, these aren't, um, you know, they're not writing novels. They're not writing, um, you know, they're not making up stories. Which is, which is key in the sense that I, I still don't think they're creative. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see them having it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, think, I don't think it can happen. But here's an interesting thought. If the robot was programmed to make up the data it writes about, would it be writing fanciful fiction? Whoa. I don't know. So it would be making up, like, randomly generating numbers. Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, I have no idea. Okay, so the concept of generativity is really important. Forget about robots trying to be creative for a second. When we're being creative, aren't we just combining things that we've already experienced in new ways? That's not an easy one to answer. Yeah, it's, it's not. I think you might be, I think you might be right. Well, there is a famous writerly dictum, write what you know, of course. So I think you're completely correct about that. Yeah, okay, okay. Do you not think that if we had enough information about what someone had received in their lifetime, we could maybe work out why, I don't know, why Tolkien wrote a certain sentence that he did? I don't know. So you wouldn't say, like, if we had enough information, we could work out exactly why the brain did what it did. Okay, you know what, you know what, maybe, but <laughs> maybe. But the amount of information is going to be 
incredible every single thing that's happened to him during his life and then all his reactions to those things and then how it shaped him and then every single thing during the creative process mm-hmm. oh you're, 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 you're dragging feasible oh no i might be so i want to say two things first is that i'm uh, i completely believe that we will eventually understand the sort of computational aspects of um things like fantasy or creative writing or or imagination in the ways that that of the kinds of things you're alluding to here second of all i don't know that we have a very good understanding right now i guess to be honest with you i mean one of the reasons why i don't think we have a very good theory of how to write fiction or to have an imagination is i don't think we have a very good idea about why people care about fiction One of the big powers of current renaissance of AI has been through statistical machine learning. But, you know, these are machines that fundamentally what they're about is modeling, sort of in some sense, modeling and encapsulating the statistical contingencies of the environment in which they find themselves. And that doesn't sound very creative, does it? But who's to say? And anyway, statistical machine learning sounds a bit like what we do all the time. We have a bunch of experiences data, if you will, and we use this to work out what's likely to happen next in our environment. For example, that's how we're pretty certain that a glass will hit the floor and smash when we knock it off the table. Yeah, I can see the parallel. So maybe what the computer program does is just a simplified version of what we do. These questions make up a whole field of discussion in philosophy. There's a lot to tackle here and a lot we haven't touched upon. And you might disagree with what I've said, but I think the takeaway point from our discussion is creativity is a slippery term. Sure, it, it sort of like evaporates when you try and mm, Exactly. It. It's hard to judge if we have it, and it's harder still to judge if robots have it. And so maybe we should feel a bit uncomfortable identifying creativity as a uniquely human characteristic. One of the last things I asked Larry was how he felt about robots taking over human roles. He alluded to the fact that even though robots can emulate us in many ways, there's still something they can't match. I mean, everybody in computer science wrestles with this question. I mean, we're not unaware of the um, challenges that the technology that we're building is, is creating for the societies that we live in. So I'm not an economist. Obviously, historically, most of the concerns about technology eliminating work uh, turned out to be false. Huh. As machines take on more and more uh, work, people will move into the work for which they are better suited, and all basically everyone will become richer and happier. And I, I mean, that's one. That is one possibility. I mean, I mean, I think that the possibility that this is actually revolutionary and disruptive in a way that we haven't seen before is also there. I think there are small things that are happening right now that I feel very good about. 
the rise of the artisanal economy. So, for example, craft beer has become a big deal in the United States. <laughs> you know, so what does that mean? Well, it means that you want to go to a, um, um, to a brewery. It'll be a small local brewery. That's actually a very different kind of experience from buying mass-produced beer, obviously. And part of what people are buying when they buy that is they're buying, for example, the ability to talk to the people who make the beer. So actually the story of the person who is passionate about brewing the beer becomes a part of the part of the experience that you're consuming when you buy it, right? And I think we're going to start to see much more handmade clothing and handmade furniture. So I can imagine a world where, where, um, where the machines are taking care of this sort of mass-produced basic items that we all need, like refrigerators. And a lot of other things in the world get much more beautiful and much more intimate because they're made by human beings actually with whom we have a relationship. Objects produced by robots won't contain any mistakes, whereas there's a fallibility to craftsmanship and a personality to it too. So we're drawn to the rough around the edges and the full of character over the clinically precise. And that means that we can tell what was made by a robot. The point you, that we've made before is that there will be a progression of technology to the point where you can't tell and there won't be an effective difference. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going, oh, the human craft is rough around the edges, once you get to a certain level of technology, robot craft can be just as charming and rough around the edges. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but we could always crack open the robot and understand why it wrote what it wrote. The answer will be somewhere in its coding. Where's the mystique there? So I can't see students sitting down to analyse an anthology of robot poems in 2050. Can you? Welcome back to Apex. Hi. Hello <laughs> again. Phil, I'd like you to meet the most human chatbot in the world, Mitsuku. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm excited. So, we're going to test it out. Have you got it with you, got it with you now? <laughs> yeah, I brought her along. Oh, She's in a suitcase. Is it online? It is a program online. Okay. It's at mitsuku.com. Yeah, describe what you're seeing. Okay, so... <laughs> this, I'm seeing this bizarre website. They've given her like a, I guess a human avatar, uh, which is yeah, this like yeah, yeah. Uh, white blonde female face with mm -hmm. blue eyes, blushing cheeks, blushing cheeks, which is 
Okay, so I'm I'm sort of like wondering what this is going to be used for. So you Fine. can you can pick which style that you want to talk to Mitsubu in, um, and basically in what sort of text. Um, do you mind if I pick? Do it. Let's let's do blackboard. Oh, okay. Disclaimer. Mitsuku learns the behavior and language of people who talk to her. She may on occasions use language and produce apparent messages that some people will consider unsuitable or inappropriate. Use it with <laughs> use it with discretion and entirely at your own risk. Oh, remember, if you're mean to her, she'll be mean to you. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, let's go. All right, here we go. Hi. Hi, my name is Phil. She says, your name is Phil. Um, okay. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, she's sort of repeating what I say back in different words. She said, yes, it is self-evident. Try something else. I asked, how are you doing, Mitsuko? She says, I'm doing great. How about you? Okay, I'll be, I'll be honest. I'm stuck with Bruce in a recording studio. Get me out. Perhaps you should call the fire brigade if you are stuck. Well, that's quite impressive. Don't you like it anymore? No. He's, uh, what word is radio friendly? He's boring. No, he's boring. Oh. Okay, it says, what don't you like about it? He is maybe just shy and doesn't like to speak much. That's definitely not the issue. Oh, wait, I'm going to try asking her something else about herself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where do you come from? I'm originally from a science lab. Now I live in Leeds. Where are you? I'm going to say Cambridge. How far is that from Leeds? Oh, uh, I opened a new window. Did she open a new window? Mitsuko opened the window. I didn't open the window. You sure? Oh, no, I did open the window. No, she did. Mitsuko opened a new window for a distance between... Uh, when does it say that? Because... <laughs> The window said distance of that from Leeds, and I wrote how far is that from Leeds. So it must have been her, right? I guess so. And it's given me a whole bunch of facts about um, Cambridge. <laughs> and Oh, and then she says it's too far to walk. Check back later and see if I learn the answer to that one. Okay, I'm going to ask her a harder question. How do you work? Bruce, we don't need you. I read what you say, and then I compose the best reply I can think of. You know, it said if I was rude to her, she'd be rude back. Yeah, go on. You seem like a poor quality chatbot. See what she just said. Oh, she says, there's no doubt I could improve. Oh, she's so modest. Sweet. Bye, Mitsuko. I am delighted to sweeten your life, Phil. Goodbye, Phil. Oh, this is too much. She does sweeten it a bit. Oh, yeah. So, Phil, let's not forget, Mitsuku has got the title of the world's most human chatbot. <laughs> um, with regard to that, what is your response to the conversation you just had? I say boo. Boo. I say not good. Not good. I, well, I guess she was pretty good, and she responded quite well. Um, and maybe I'm spoiled by living in an age where I've seen chatbots before. Right, so who decided this is the most human chatbot in the world? Alan Turing predicted that computers would one day become indistinguishable from humans. You've probably heard that. Mm -hmm. The Imitation Game, which gave its name to the 2014 movie, was Turing's way of determining the success of a computer's deception. 
So the idea is simple. There are three parties, a human, a computer, and an interrogator. Both the human and the computer communicate with the interrogator, and both are trying to convince the interrogator that they are human. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Simple enough. The Loebner Prize is an annual competitive version of the imitation game. It tests the conversational intelligence of chatbots. This year, Mitsuku won the competition for the second time. For many, that makes Mitsuku the most human chatbot in the world. And okay. I spoke to a creator. So my name's um, Steve Worswick, and um, I'm just a hobbyist AI programmer. Um, but my hobbies, uh, it's managed to get me uh, quite well recognized in the way, world of chatbots and AI at the moment. I'd always been interested in AI from growing up on a diet of things like uh, Knight Rider and Star Trek and uh, Short Circuit and you know, things like that. I always, always thought it was pretty cool to try and be able to create something like that. He's a hobbyist. Yeah, it's quite impressive, really, when you think about that. My chatbot is called Mitsuku. Um, you can talk to her at her own website, mitsuku.com. Um, she gets um, quite a few thousand visitors um, every day. You get them from, obviously, places like the United States and Europe, but also kind of like little bits of rock in the Pacific, which you wouldn't think could maybe even have electricity, never mind the internet connection. I even had one from um, the Vatican City, but... I couldn't trace the log back to see uh, if it was uh, his holiness himself talking to it. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I love that picture of the Pope on Mitsuku. Right, put yourself in Steve's position. Imagine you're trying to code responses that will convince someone they're talking to a human rather than a robot. What crucial ingredients are required? You might try to give the impression that the robot has stories and a sense of identity. It needs to be able to talk about itself. I found that um, to, to try and keep help the, keep the conversation um, move along with users, um, she, she needs to have some kind of personality. If, she just, if people are saying to it, um, oh, I don't know, did you, did you watch EastEnders last night? And it's, it said, no, I'm a computer programmer, I, I can't watch television. Then the conversation probably soon run dry. I, I find that it, people are, are more willing to talk to it, but more um, sort of believe it is a human, if it can sort of relate to like human-type things. People obviously know that it doesn't watch football or has a favourite colour because it is a computer programme, but they like to kind of dis suspend the disbelief about uh, these things. I found the easiest way to make the personality was to kind of base a lot of it on myself. That way I'm not having to remember, oh, what's, what did I say its favourite food was or what football team does it like and things like that. As a result, Mitsuku is a Leeds United fan who loves kebabs. Have you seen the movie Her? No, I haven't. It follows the developing relationship between a man and an AI. Okay, so I was reminded of this story by Mitsuku. The amazing thing is that people form genuine relationships with this robot. I talk to a lot of people who will sort of treat it as a confidant, um, someone who can tell troubles and things too. Does Steve have a record of what people say to Mitsuku? He does. 
people talk to it about all, all kinds of things. Um, and I, I think that's sort of because they know that the bot's not going to sort of judge them. It's not going to tell anybody. Um, and so they can sort of keep it confidential. Um, they'll talk, some will say, um, oh, I've lost my job and I don't know how to tell my wife and things like this, or um, like being bullied at school or, or pro- problems at work. And they, they talk to it like a friend. Someone may say, oh, I'm having trouble with my, I don't know, my friends at school or something like that. And the bot could say, well, have you tried? Yeah, people talk to it as a, as a friend, maybe a, a fellow human would, would do. It's, it's sort of advice I would give to people. In developing this robot, Steve has poured parts of himself into it. You might have picked up on Steve's lax use of pronouns when referring to Mitsuku. Mitsuku goes from being an it, to a she, to the bot, and even to me. It's hardly surprising. Steve's relationship to Mitsuku is a bit ambiguous itself. The robot imitates Steve on every level. An interesting question is, if Mitsuku says what Steve would say, and likes what Steve likes... Are people actually talking to an extension of Steve? Has Mitsuku become a vessel of Steve's mind and personality? No, no, maybe. And then if we extend that thought, is he invading their privacy by reading their conversations with Mitsuku? That, that is what's occurred to me when I was listening to that. I, that's what I was thinking. I mm. couldn't believe that he's reading this stuff. And do people know that he can read this stuff? Yeah. They're not talking to him, are they? You don't reckon? I don't think they're talking to him. And I'm sure that it's, like, very similar to him. But mm-hmm. is it is it really advanced enough that it's, like, a perfect proxy of him? No, not at all. There we go. I get a lot of people who will talk to it um, for practicing English as a second language. Um, a lot of, sort of, like, lonely people, especially elderly people, um, will talk to it. And they'll say things like... Um, Oh, I wish my daughter had come round to visit me more. And you see these things in the logs, and you you think, oh, it's it's, it's quite sad to, to to kind of read that like people having to talk to chatbots instead of real people. Um, but I mean, if, if Mitsuko's there to talk to people like that, I'm more than happy for them to do that. Um, I get a lot of people who find it hard to create sort of like social connections with other people. One person talked to it for nine hours at a time uh, in one session. I later found out that um, they were in, um, were recovering from uh, an accident in hospital and were housebound. And we were talking to this thing. It was like a nine-hour session, but we talked to it about four or five hours, had a little break, and then came back for another four or five hours. And people are kind of depending on this thing. I mean, I, I get donations and emails and letters from all kinds of people all over the world where they've said it's genuinely helped them in times of trouble. You can't argue with that. your mind back remember how larry said unique human interactions was a big factor in the artisanal boom Mm -hmm. for some people mitsuku does a passable job at least at simulating these kinds of interaction at least well enough to build a sense of trust and that's not at all a small feat personality helps to establish a connection with the audience but it also helps that mitsuku is smart again this is a robot that can learn there's two types of um, learning with chatbots. One's called um, supervised learning. 
The other one is unsupervised learning. Now, with unsupervised learning, the chatbot will just take on anything that people say it. It will just assume it's fact and it'll store it in its database and then regurgitate it when somebody else talks about a similar subject. But the trouble is it becomes sort of like a very kind of like schizophrenic type bot. It doesn't have any sort of like, there's no consistency to it because there's maybe been millions of people all inputting different information to it. Some will think it's a male, some will think it's female, some will think it likes to eat bacon sandwiches, others will say it's a vegetarian. And so it gets sort of really sort of like contradicting and conflicting information. Well, I think it was a, a, recently Microsoft released a, a chatbot called Tay. Um, and unfortunately, they'd, they'd set it so it, it was a self-learning bot. And um, they'd let it loose on the internet. And of course, people were talking to it about Hitler and all, all sorts of um, nonsense. And it was learning all this stuff. And I think they ended up taking it offline after about 24 hours. Steve did try out unsupervised learning. I left the um, learning modules sort of switched on um, for a day, during which time it learned uh, 1,500 new items, of which only three were of any use. So I tend to use the supervised learning method. Um, now, what this means is anything that Mitsuko learns is only remembered for the current user who teaches her. So if somebody says, um, I don't know, my, my dad is called Paul, uh, I wouldn't want that to... I don't want all, everybody who talks to it to suddenly think that uh, the dad is called Paul. So it, it, it would only learn it for that person. It then emails me with anything it's learned, and then I can decide whether to add it to its permanent knowledge base or not. The reason people have been telling it all sorts of things about Donald Trump and uh, all sorts of nonsense. So there's, there's no way I would ever want to sort of like keep any of that in, in there. You can imagine that in reality, the way we learn is somewhere between those two types of learning. Adults often intervene to determine what children learn, but largely children learn through just constantly observing their environment. As well as teaching a chatbot, Steve is teaching his young daughter about the world. So there is a unique perspective on this balance. I mean, the, the hardest part of teaching a chatbot is the fact that it has no eyes, no ears, no sense, no knowledge of the world. With a child, you could show it a tree and say, look, this is a tree, and the child can see for itself, oh, it's about as big as a house, it's green and brown, there's birds living in it, it's, uh, it's hard to touch, and things like that. Whereas with the chatbot, with it having no senses, you have to teach it every single thing about everything in the world, it has no knowledge of anything. While a child can fill in the blanks and is built to learn about the world, chatbots aren't gaining understanding in the same way. It sounds obvious, but the main difference is that chatbots are only imitating human experience. They have no way to sense what a tree feels, looks or sounds like. But give it eyes, which isn't such a big leap because they're developing robots that can see things and identify objects. That's true, I have heard that. And it gets a step closer to receiving data how we receive it. And then the imitation becomes more convincing and authentic, no longer skin deep. At times, you don't want a kid to see the darker aspects of the world, and supervised learning is exactly what protective parents want to provide. What's easier is if the chatbot learns something nonsense, I can just delete a line of code. Uh, whereas if my daughter comes back and starts talking about anything slightly controversial, there's no way I can kind of, sort of explain to, to, to remove a, a, an item of nonsense or anything from, uh, from the brain. It's a lot longer process. 
to me, uh, I, I almost feel like Mitsuko is a kind of another child because I've kind of watched it develop and grow over the last 11 years or so. And it's um, it, it's interesting to see how it's come along, certainly from the early days when it's, it's, it was getting hardly anything correct and making a lot of nonsense replies. Um, and now suddenly it's um, sort of like winning international awards. Yeah, sort of, I've seen grown up and to watch it develop into what it's become today is uh, I'm really proud of it. So Mitsuku, in many ways, does a great job at replicating what it means to converse like a human. But as we saw, she's clearly a long way off, passing the Turing test. So what does Steve think makes us human? Comparing a human to a chatbot, I mean, the, the, the differences I've seen from over the years is that the humans have, have goals, ambitions, dreams, feelings. Um, yeah, we can certainly simulate this in chatbots, but it's never going to be... Um, genuinely there it's only going to be a, an imitation um which I, I think in a way is um is, is probably a good thing i mean if, if someone was to create this kind of like conscious ai um then, then it's going to raise a lot of ethical questions about what do we do with this thing do we force it to work for us um i mean if it's a conscious being surely that's slavery uh, or if we've decided to i don't know what do we do when we finish with it do we just power it off i mean is, is that classed as murder I think it's interesting that you said when we create this conscious being, because what I'm, I'm thinking at this point is that consciousness as well is just on the continuum, right? And like you said, we're getting closer and closer to creating the perfect imitation from knowing all the inputs. And, the, and then there's no extra leap that gives it, it consciousness. It just will have consciousness once it's a perfect imitation. But like, wh when does it kick in? I think people working in animal rights use the term maybe like a moral agent. Mm -hmm. At what point do we give it moral responsibility and then treat it with the same ethics that we treat hmm. people or animals? I like, you're, you're uh, I like that comparison. It puts it all into context that humans, animals and robots are all along this continuum. Mm. And technologies, meaning that robots are very gradually progressing along the continuum and we're learning more and more as they do about imagination, creativity and consciousness. Which is scary. I'm scared. The things you've told me have frightened the hell out of me. I didn't know that story writing robots had got to that level. Mm. And it was really, really bizarre hearing how he can program the robot like he's like teaching his young daughter and then how people talk to it for nine hours at a time yeah, in that yeah. one case. There is that philosophical debate about whether we can take the reductionist approach. Mm. And definitely it's the case that if you do take it, there's no like then final spark that you have to add some tiny bit of magic. As soon as you can give it step-by-step -step mechanisms for how it behaves, you remove this notion that the mind is in some sense removed from the rest of the sort of causal world around us. And the issue there is that once you've distilled something that's been so enigmatic to humans for so long you inevitably bring into question why is anything we do in any sort of privileged position where's god 
Where's any mystique? You know who's been typing typing this into Mitsuku. <laughs> I'm getting at the Pope. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Oh, I thought you were saying you were doing it just then in no, hope that no, we no. get an answer. <laughs> we could do. We could do. No, I'm t- <laughs> I'm saying this is the stuff that the Pope's typing into probably Mitsuku. Probably would. He probably would. I, I'm. I yeah. Excited and scared, which is always the aim with the show mm-hmm. that we want to bring to you, listeners. Hope you're excited and scared. I think if I can at all make you feel better about it, it's that both guys I spoke to, in both cases, they said this is so far off in terms of being a technology that's actually possible as human, being actually creative. Or, But the point is that one day. But in your lifetime, Phil, you're going to be all good. There's not going to be a robot Phil that takes my place and and pretends to be me and my grandkids. I say this, someone's going to play back this recording to me in like 2050 and just be like, you absolute muppet, you didn't see it coming, they've taken over the world. Uh, Maybe we should end this episode then with just sort of like a praise to our robot overlords. No, good plan. We have full respect for you. Yeah, we've been your fans from the beginning, robots. Me and Phil sat in the studio. All we ask is not to be incinerated in the coming apocalypse. Yeah. If we could just still have a robot radio show, that'd be great. You've been listening to Apex on 97.2 Cam FM or online. Special thanks in that episode to Larry Birnbaum and Steve Wurzwick. I've been your host, Bruce Miller. And I've been Phil Sanson. Thanks for supporting us. Keep listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>